You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Don't worry. The NBA Finals will always rule what everybody wants to talk about. But tonight, you get to press pause on all the legacy conversations about Steph. You get to press pause on hearing about what Draymond's going to do. You get to press pause on all of that. Because tonight, you get to celebrate three of the best words in all of sports. The Stanley Cup Final. It is here, game one. It all comes down to this, and I cannot wait for every single second of it. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, and we get right to some straight talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Sarah, the 2022 Stanley Cup playoffs, down to two teams. Western Conference champion Colorado Avalanche will host Eastern Conference champion Tampa Bay Lightning. Game one tonight on ABC and ESPN Plus at 8 p.m. Eastern, and this is such an incredible matchup to me because this is the matchup of arguably the two best teams for most of the regular season, the two teams that everybody in the preseason wanted to see, the two teams we thought coming in to the playoff we might have a shot at, and now we get great offense versus great defense in an absolutely epic final. I'm excited, but I will say that I did pick the Panthers, and I am still a little bit sad about the storyline I most wanted to see, which was Joe Thornton and a team that's been out for so long. But this is good. We do have the potential three-peat of the Lightning. We do have an Avs team that has gotten this close so many times and finally looks primed to potentially take over from the Lightning as the next little mini-dynasty, a team that could put together a couple cup wins, and this could be the beginning of that. I'm excited because the Stanley Cup final and all of the pageantry, all of the traditions, all of the nerves, especially when it goes into overtime, all of that, um, I miss it here in Chicago. We had a great run for a while. It's been a little bit, and so it brings back tons of great memories for me every time this kind of year, uh, type, type of year comes, time of year comes around again. I, I want to invent a time machine and, and waste it, not use anything productive. <laughs> I, I, I want to go back and look at the, the look in people's eyes when I say, have you checked Twitter? Just Google it. That's one thing I want to do, like back to 95. Right, right, but right, the other right, thing right. I want to do is go back there and say to everybody, man, I cannot wait to tell you all about the Tampa Bay Lightning <laughs> Dynasty. Just to look at the, the, the faces of hockey nuts. Now, I picked Toronto, by the way, so I was equally very, very wrong. I thought this was the year that they would break through, and all of a sudden you see Tampa Bay just finding a way to continue to get it done. And we've talked about it a couple of times over the last few weeks, but, man, they're on the brink of having the opportunity to do something we haven't seen since the early 80s. Three straight cups? Like, that's insane for all of the the moments of greatness we've seen in the last 30 years. Three straight it's just it feels impossible to do and for Tampa Bay to be sitting at the the edge of that cliff i just as a hockey fan i respect so much of this era cuz i feel like it's one that we will be laughing about for a long time simply because of that uh you know who won't be laughing canada no. No, uh, because it is an affront to all canadians uh that tampa <laughs> bay is the current dynasty of hockey. Well, our friends up north have been wishing and hoping and praying uh, for a cup for a while. Uh, I, I think I'm, I have to admit that I was wrong about the Lightning. One of the reasons that I saw the Panthers getting through on that side was because I just thought it's so hard to repeat, not to mention the repeat, to get yourself up for every single game and to care about it enough despite already having those wins under your belt, particularly in hockey. One of the things... Uh, that kind of goes along with watching playoff hockey is the understanding that the minute a team is done, 
their players will still start to come out and tell you that they have like a ruptured spleen, like a severed <laughs> leg. They have one remaining tooth. They're, you know, 18,000 concussions. Like it is a laundry list of some of the worst and most painful sounding injuries ever that they just play through. And so to get yourself to do that again through series after series, game after game, when you've already got those two under your belt, it's incredibly impressive. By the way, I love this note from Stats and Info. The Lightning, four wins away from becoming the first Florida-based franchise to win four titles in any, the, either the NHL, oh, NBA, NFL, Major League <laughs> Baseball. The first to three-peat that. They're doing things the Heat didn't do, the Dolphins didn't do in their heyday. I think it's pretty, pretty spectacular. Yeah, I guess they should have been the ones that said, not one, not uh. two. <laughs> Uh, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz giving you the straight talk. Straight talk, wireless, no contract, no compromise. Now their opponent, Colorado, who, you know, if you weren't paying attention, it's because they didn't play very many games. It only took them 14 games total to get to where they are right now. So the question is, will Rust play a factor in this? And Barry Trotter, uh, Hockey Hall of Famer, had this to say about that on Barton Hunt. The timing and, you know, that team unity that, that happens on the ice. And if you sit out for a while, you know, you, you lose some of that. The timing's a little gone. And, um, yeah, you're a little rust on, on, on things. But I'll tell you one thing. You know, whether you're rested or whether you're battle-worn, you find, you find it. The adrenaline, the focus, whatever it is, you just dig a little deeper, and these guys find it. And it just makes for just better intensity, better mm-hmm. uh, value for the fans. By the way, Fitz, I love that you Brian, combined yeah. Barry Trotz yeah. and Brian Trottier. Brian, by the way, was part of that Islanders team that won uh, those three cups in a row back in the day. Or was it four even? I think four for the Islanders four. back then, yeah. which is unbelievable. And then I want to say they made it the next year and got bump- bounced right before the cup final, which would have been uh, unbelievable. But, yeah, I-, I think what he said is right. But I- what interests me, I think, is how it might affect the beginning of the series versus the end. I think the rust actually hurts the abs right now and then later in the series those fresh legs help them so i can see the islanders i'm sorry the lightning coming out hot in the first game or two and then getting more tired because it took them longer to get rid of those previous opponents yeah i don't disagree with that at all and you're right uh, about my name scrub leave it to me to not be able to read (laughs) uh sarah you've gone through some some incredible moments with the blackhawks i was lucky enough to work for the preds flagship 1025 the game in nashville when uh, the Preds went on their Stanley Cup final run. Didn't result in the win, but still incredible. Do you have, like, a favorite memory from a Stanley Cup run? One of them, for sure, from its novelty, was I was working at ESPN 1000 local radio when the Blackhawks won the first of their three in that stretch. It had been 50 years since the Hawks won. It had been a while since the Chicago team had won. I think it was the White Sox World Series had been the last uh, major championship in Chicago, so people were ready. And I, growing up as a huge Chicago fan, my parents were not really into sports and they definitely weren't into crowds. So I never went to any of the Bulls parades. You know, the Cubs obviously hadn't won anything. Bears hadn't won since I was old enough to go. So this was my first real parade. And I got to be on a bus in it. And when you're looking out at a sea of people and they're not cheering for you, but you don't care because it's thousands and thousands of people sending you their energy and I literally look over at another reporter that was next to me as we first hit the like biggest wave of people and we both started kind of tearing up because it was so overwhelming 
this feeling of energy. And that was a precursor, of course, to when I was on the double-decker bus for the Cubs parade, and that was allegedly the seventh largest gathering of human beings in human history. I'm not sure how they figured those things out, but that was the case. Those moments, I think, really stand out to me is like when you're a part of it. And also, I had covered the Blackhawks at my my first job back in Chicago before ESPN 1000 and been in the locker room. And so I knew a lot of the players and that made it super special to cover them in sort of beat reporter capacity where I had a personal relationship with them and I was just so pumped for them that they'd won. I think it was incredible for me watching the Preds go on their run because, you know, as a fan, I sat in the building for the first ever game for the Preds uh, at Bridgestone arena and, you know, to, to sit there years later covering the team on the flagship and, and go to the watch parties. It was the coolest thing because they shut down lower broad. So it looked like the NFL draft, if anybody remembers it uh, during the uh, Nashville broadcast of that. It, it looked just like it. And everybody was slammed from one end of the Broadway to the other end just watching the Preds. And what was I'll never forget was the night that we actually clinched our way into the Stanley Cup final. My co-host, Braden Gall, and I, uh, Braden and I just decided that we were going to celebrate with the people. So at the end of the game, we went into a few of the bars. We hung out with everybody, and we hung out until we had to just drive to the studio. And uh, we got to the wow. studio to do the morning show, Braden and Fitz at the time. And we uh, we decided the smartest thing to do would just be open up the phones and have tell people have everybody tell their stories about how they experienced that night because it was so historic for the franchise. It was a great show because everybody had such a great time, but also we needed their strength to get through the way we felt yeah, that morning. Those That's nights, all. those cup nights and the next mornings were always tough because once you win it, which I'm sorry to say you haven't still, no. and the Preds did not then, so your no. fun was good, but not as fun as mine was no. three times. Mm. When they do win it, you start to have the cup tracker on Twitter. You start to get the text message, okay, it's at Underground right now, or head on over, it's at it's at the Pony, it's at wherever. And you, you like try to bounce around and follow and drink out of it and party and get to catch a glimpse of it and the next morning you want to die but you have the photos and the memories and it's it's awesome P- pretty normal for my life sarah never forget the preds lost the stanley cup final at home so i did oh. see the stanley oh. cup and i did see it hoisted it just oh, wasn't no. for the team i wanted all right we'll keep you updated on everything you know plus we're gonna have a great expert next hour break down everything you need to know about this series and this matchup but coming up how much will experience matter in game six of the nba finals we'll tell you next spain and fits on espn radio spain and fits the podcast spain and fits on espn radio the espn app series xm channel 80 ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Sarah, I don't know if you saw this, but the Cards last night lost a no-hitter with two outs in the ninth inning. Now, I understand that these things will happen. <laughs> I have a little bit, I mean, 129th pitch from the pitcher. Uh, I, I don't know. You're up 9-1. I frankly would have not even swung at it. Would just let the game end. Just let the guy get his no-hitter. He was going to have his no-hitter. Didn't no. get his hitter at the very end of the game. I, Cardinals I hear deserve you're, nothing. I, I, I understand the Cardinals portion of this, but is there anything? Have you had like an almost big accomplishment in your life? Something that you're like, yes, that's that's. I I almost got there, and it would have been epic, and everybody would have remembered it. I mean, I'm trying to think because, like, in theory, that will usually go down as a feeling of failure if you're on the precipice. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think if I've ever failed at the highest levels. Um, I mean, I did misspell Ariel in the spelling bee, which I knew how to spell. I got the A E R part right, but then I spelled the end like Ariel the mermaid instead of the planes. That felt like a blow at the time. Mm. No, I don't think I've ever approached <laughs> greatness. I would have to approach greatness in order to not quite achieve it. I don't think I've ever approached it. I, I will say this. I thought for many years that that was me 
uh, with an almost big accomplishment with the Grammys. I, like I, I knew of several nominations. I didn't realize right, I had right, won. Right. And so it wasn't until oh. years later when I was going back a couple of years ago when I was going back and, and tracking the records that I played on to get the golden platinum plaques because I never got that when I was touring. I just didn't I didn't think it was important. And after I toured, I wanted to be able to remember it. And as I went through and, and processed everything, that's when somebody came in and said from uh, from the Recording Academy came in and said, you realize that you won a Grammy on this Michael W. w. Smith record. Oh. And I was like, no, I did not nice. realize that. So yeah. for years, that was it. But uh, yeah. we'll ask you guys on I guess on for Twitter. me, it's like, uh, oh. I, you know, I, I was nominated for an Emmy and I won. I was nominated for a Peabody and I won. I was nominated for the Jenkins Medal of Excellence in Sports Running and I won. Oh. So it's like I've right. never been on the edge and not. Finished. I was, I, I was yeah. nominated for a sports Emmy and lost live on air with you, actually. But uh, you so know that, that 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 yeah, that's what happens. Uh, we'll ask you guys other to people have in. it almost. Yeah, yeah, I would I would like if somebody else has that moment of like through a pick at the end of the like high school state championship or like you know that that almost moment. Yeah, and we'll get producer Devin to give us one. He's got to have one. He's quite the uh, accomplished athlete in his own mind, so we'll get one of those from him. But before we do any of that, let's get to the NBA. Obviously, as all eyes tomorrow, we'll be on the Warriors and the Celtics playing in Game 6. And I think it's interesting, Sarah, because yesterday I mentioned Andrew Wiggins and the need for acceptance by all of us that coaching and system matters. And I was having a conversation last night uh, with Mike Golick Jr., and uh, we were talking about that that take, basically, that concept. And, and Mike said the one thing that I was forgetting, and I think he's right about this, is where the pressure lies for guys that have never been there. Because if you're Andrew Wiggins, if you're Poole, uh, if you're Kevon Looney, if you're guys that haven't been at this platform before, but you're surrounded by guys that are really eating most of the pressure that have been there before, that's far different than the Celtics who are navigating a first all the way across the roster. And maybe that plays more into an ability for a young player to play free, knowing that, hey, you don't have the same cooker on you all the way across the board. You buying it? Yeah, I, I, I think it's true. I think that you are going to rely on those who have been there before. And also your coach, as I've said throughout this series, is going to know for the, have an idea at least of how people behave in stressful situations. Both for Ime and his players, nobody has any idea how they operate in an elimination game of the NBA Finals because they've never been there. Whereas Steve Kerr and the core of that Warriors team can dig down and find a moment to reflect upon that teaches them something not to do, teaches them something that they've done before when they've been on the edge and said, okay, here's what I did last time or here's where I can, you know, like Clay watching highlights of himself in game six to get out of the slump. They can go back and find those moments that they thrived in and say, we've been here and we've done it. Yeah, well, and at some point that has to matter for everybody, I, I just can't figure out if there's a freedom that comes. That's that my, my whole argument for the Celtics through this process is the lack of experience gives them a little bit of freedom just just to you know play uh, lights mm-hmm. out and not even think about the mm-hmm. moment. I, I, I don't know. I'm, maybe that's just me rationalizing it in my own mind. I certainly can't speak to what it's like to be in a championship moment, but I will say that I, I always felt like even in, in my music life, like I understood situations a little bit differently after I'd been there a couple of times. Like it, it I don't know, for me, the first time you play a huge TV show, it just hits different. Like it, it, it for me, it was easier, but maybe that's not the norm for everybody. So, well, I, I do think that there is an element of never been there before, don't know how big this is, believe you'll get back. Whereas if you lose and then it takes you five, six years to get there again, you think, oh my God, this might be the last chance I ever get. So I, I, I'm with you on that. I just think that 
you know, it, it goes both ways. That idea of I've been here, I know I can do it, no matter how dark things feel, I've been there before and won it. Well, you're a thousand percent right. I, I think that there's a nice blend for the Warriors. Like it, one thing we won't have any, you know, for all the context conversations and the conversations about what this will mean long term. The the nice thing for the Warriors is that while their seasoned veterans uh, have been here so much and can be relied on this young group of players that they have, should they become part of the future of the Warriors long term? Uh, they're gaining all of this experience and all of these moments and, and no knowledge of what to do, when to do, how to do, how to live the moment while Steph and Clay and Draymond are taking the brunt of the pressure that comes with it. It's sort of a perfect situation that we talk about in the NFL all the time, balancing your roster with guys that have been there before and, and veterans versus young guys that are learning while it's happening. It feels like maybe Golden State is doing that right now. Yeah. I mean, I think – the, the the thing for the Warriors is that while they have been there multiple times and won many times, every time feels different. They've also lost. They had a, a tremendously disappointing, extremely uh, historic blowing of it to LeBron and company when they definitely should have won that series. So they can also find within themselves um, that fear of, of repeating that, right? Where you're up and you blow a 3-1 lead or you blow a series that you should win. So, um, but but I think that it feels like a Steve Kerr-led team has perspective and the ability to look around and say, if we win this time, we're doing it against a tremendous team. The circumstances are different. Our guys are older. Clay's coming back from 900-plus days gone. We've got some youngsters. Like there, there are all these moments that they could pull from that might make this feel even more special than some of the other ones. It's interesting to me that the Warriors are 3-3 three and three with the clinch opportunity this postseason. They've lost in each round they've played entering the finals uh, in the clinching opportunity. If they were to lose game six, it'd be the first time the franchise has ever lost four games with the clinch opportunity wow. in a single postseason. I don't know. That feels like one of those great nuggets. I don't know what the hell it actually means for this game six. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Your small business keeps you on the go. Progressive Commercial Insurance keeps your policy within reach with our easy-to-use mobile app. Learn more at ProgressiveCommercial.com. We'll keep breaking down everything you need to know for game six as we get ready for that tomorrow night. But coming up, how much has the Live Golf Series cast a black cloud over this week's U.S. Open? We'll head to Boston next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Happy Wednesday. We've been talking a lot about the first tournament for the Live Golf and some of the reactions around the PGA and USGA. Well, now we've got the unique situation of PGA players playing alongside those live defectors in the U.S. Open. Joining us to talk about it, ESPN senior writer Kevin Van Valkenburg. Kevin, I, I want to kind of picture how awkward you think it will be for some of these players to play alongside guys who have spoken out about their decision to leave. Do you think that the U.S. Open will do any pairing to heighten that conversation, or do you think they'll play it safe and separate them? Well, USJ does have a little bit of a sense of humor when it comes to pairings. I don't know what they're sort of interested in doing. I mean, they, I don't know that it'll be too awkward in part because all of these guys have sort of known who was headed to live golf uh, as it's been the kind of the topic of the tour for the last four or five months or so. And so those sort of weird, awkward conversations have already been playing out over the last, uh, you know, two months or so. It, it's, 
it's definitely, I think the, the players who aren't going to live golf are really just tired of answering questions about it. They feel like, Hey, we've made our choice and this is just exhausting to have to always talk about. But uh, you know, when, once the tournament begins, then, you know, the pairings after the first two rounds are sort of uh, determined by scores. So it would be super fun. I think if we got some bizarre, uh, not bizarre isn't the right word, but like awkward uh, meetings of, you know, whether it was Phil and Rory or, JT and uh, Dustin Johnson or something to that effect. You mentioned that the players are tired of talking about it. Brooks Kepka said that the questions are putting a cloud over the U.S. Open, but it feels like these conversations are important. So how should the media be handling it with the players that have already made these decisions? I think it's a good rule for the media to never take media advice from Brooks Kepka, who's always kind of doing a well, Brooks Kepka is aggrieved. I mean, he is definitely one of the <laughs> people who was most likely rumored to be the, among the next wave of players who jumps. And, uh, you know, if players hadn't, if, excuse me, if the media hadn't asked Brooks Kepka questions about this stuff, there's a very real chance that Brooks Kepka could be mad about, you know, why didn't anyone ask my opinion? I would have shut it down. I would have told you how dumb it was. And that's just kind of how Brooks is. He, he almost needs to get mad to play well in major championships. I think the media should continue to ask questions about this because it's the biggest story in the last 30 years of golf. We're, essentially going to have two fractured tours and one that is entirely about money and one that is going to be faced with a a huge sort of need to reinvent itself in a lot of ways and figure out what it is that they're going to do to keep guys from further defecting. So I think it's, it's silly to be like, you know, I'm sorry that the USG, the US open is the sort of site where it all kind of happens, but it's right after the first live golf tournament uh, in London. And so there's obviously going to be a lot of questions that people have of like, What's next? You, you know, they're probably going to announce the field for the Portland Live event on Monday. So there'll be a whole slew of questions next after that. Kevin Van Valkenburg is with us here talking about the Live Golf event and the lead-up to the U.S. Open, which will put all the players back together. Uh, you know, I, I've heard people say, including on our air, you know, well, if if we're not going to talk about China, why are we talking about this? Or if Brittany Griner was in Russia playing, she was playing for a country that has human rights issues. Or even if the PGA isn't going to pay players unless they win, can you blame them for going somewhere where there's a flat fee to participate, whether or not you play well? How do you je- address all of those comments when it comes to speaking about the, the issues with playing on the Live Tour? So for the most part, when people throw those kind of things out, they don't really want to have a discussion about human rights in Russia or China. And I'm always right. like, okay, let's have that discussion. Like, let's do it. You think that what you actually want to do is just say, well, there's some other bad things in the world, so everything should be bad. And I'm kind right. of the opinion of like, no, no, you want to open the door to that? Let's talk about all that stuff. And I think that mostly when you throw those things at people who are saying that stuff, they're kind of like, uh... Uh, well, you know, I, I just think it's hypocrisy. So, you know, I, I think that, yeah, we should have a discussion about, like, should the World Cup be in Qatar in, you know, in the sort of this summer? That's a here's later in the fall. That's a huge place for, you know, potential human rights issues that have had all kinds of stuff with, you know, making people build those stadiums out of nothing that are essentially, right. you know, indentured servants, slave workers. So, I, you know, th- there is subtle differences in these conversations about like if you think that live golf playing for live golf is the same as tweeting from an iphone you're really not smart enough to have this conversation like there are (laughs) huge differences between like 
the supply chain of the world and the global economy and literally working directly for the Saudi Arabian government to specifically cleanse its reputation globally. And so like wearing a Nike shirt that purchased in the USA and that you paid taxes on is not the same as getting $200 million to make Saudi Arabia look better because they have done horrible things. And we can have those conversations and we can say, hey, maybe it isn't the best interest if you're you're an ethical person to buy that Nike shirt. And I'll have that talk too. But this, I cover golf and the world of the, the corner of my world is golf. And so I'm going to tell people about where this money is coming from and what the sort of, you know, ethical implications are, and then they can make their decisions from there. So, Kevin, when you talk about implications, the other part of it is the business implication. When all this is said and done, what impact will these golfers going to live actually have on the PGA Tour? I mean, I think the potential for it is huge. Imagine if you took the 50 best players out of the NBA and you said, okay, well, they're playing in a, in a different league, you know, overseas somewhere, or they're playing in a, you know, not the NBA, you would be really sort of hard-pressed as not only as an NBA fan, but as like a, you know, a media executive who was broadcasting NBA games of like, you know, would you be just as excited if there was no LeBron, if there was no Steph, if there was no Giannis? Like you could say, okay, well, there's lots of other young, talented people who would come up and fill those roles, but like, a lot of what we watch sports is because of narrative and because of like, you know, we've watched these guys grow up and we have, we feel invested in them. That's the same way it is for the golf. And so if you took the top 50 players out of the PGA tour on a week to week basis, what does that look like in terms of like who's watching those tournaments? If you had say a 1.9 rating before for a a big tournament and now the 0.9 rating do your still like your you know insurance companies? Do they still want to advertise and pay out what they do? Do the tournament still going to be sponsored? You know, people it costs like twenty thousand, twenty million dollars to put up a PGA Tour tournament, and so how does that ripple effect, you know, go across the entire sport? And I think that the PGA Tour needs to figure out ways to because morality isn't going to do it for very long. Like there's only so many Rory McIlroys in the world who are going to say, you know, I'm uncomfortable with this. I feel like this is what's important uh, to stay here. That's not going to hold the line for forever. And for the PG Tour to figure out some kind of way to compensate these guys that makes them feel like, yeah, it is worth it here to stay to me and compete for history and trophies. Kevin Van Valkenburg with us. You can follow him at K Van Valkenburg on Twitter. Talking U.S. Open and Live Golf. As far as those changes go, one of the things that I have found compelling that as not a golf you know, super fan I had not thought about was the idea that the PGA hadn't been pushed to compensate folks for participation, maybe the same way that you might in other sports. When you're injured, you don't get paid. If you don't play well, you don't get paid. And it makes it difficult for the people who aren't superstars to make money. Does this in any way give leverage to that argument? I know at one point Phil said he wanted the leverage and that's why he was joining Liv. Uh, It's gotten much more complicated than that simply being his incentive. But um, is there is there some truth to that idea that this could push the PGA to make some changes that because they used to be a monopoly, they didn't have to do? For sure. Golf for a long time uh, prided itself on this idea that like if you didn't play well, you didn't get paid that that was sort of a way that it made it somehow more more pure and separate from other sports but as the huge financial pot grew in all the sports golfers started to look around and say like well this isn't fair and it isn't so much like the the mid-tour tier guys as it's the superstars who sort of feel like yo i am 
like contributing a large amount to the success of the tour via its like TV contract. Like, there's no amount of money I think that you could have the PGA Tour like give Tiger Woods directly that would be too much based on like how right. much he exploded the TV contract stuff throughout the 30 years that he was a, a really great player. The problem with the PGA Tour is is that for since 1978 it's been set up as a nonprofit. And there are laws that govern what a nonprofit can do in terms of paying players directly without some sort of purpose to it, right? They have to kind of come up with all these sort of gimmicks. There's a thing that called the, the PIP this year that was like, you know, player impact program that was kind of based on how much fans are interested in Google, you have, how much sort of, you know, viewers you're technically drive. And it was really just a way to pay the top 10 players more money to sort of keep them, you know, from jumping to live golf. And so, yes, the PGA Tour need, probably needs to figure out that the world has changed and that players aren't just satisfied with, like, winning a little bit of money here on the course and then getting paid a ton off the course. They want some sort of guarantee of, like, hey, I feel like I deserve $10, 20000000 million, whether I'm, like, not good. Like, Ricky Fowler is a great example of a player who was hugely popular with fans for a long time, was probably, like, one of the PGA Tours, like, amazing, like, ace in the holes in terms of, like, trying to drive any kind of youth engagement in golf. And now he's not playing well. Right. And it's not enough, I think, for Ricky, you know, long term to just say, like, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with, like, losing my card and, like, relying on endorsements from now on or whatever. I think he probably wants some guarantees of, like, yeah, I'd like to still have starts and I'd like, because I'm one of the people who helped grow this tour. And that argument is essentially why Phil Mickelson decided to leave. He's like, I'm not – feel like I'm maximizing my value. So I, to be honest, I don't know what the answer is. Is it, is it ripping up the entire structure of the PGA tour to sort of say, okay, we are actually a for-profit entity now and we can pay out money directly to players and not have to worry about balancing our books. That's like, they need to get the smartest business minds in all right. of uh, America right now together and figure that out because they're facing a huge existential threat to their whole business model. It's also fascinating, and it will be interesting to see how it continues as we get further away from the shock and awe of the very first time we're hearing about it and gets into a rhythm, whether people are as outraged and whether the people who took a chance on going are just counting on us, getting uh, fatigued over talking about all of it. Awesome stuff, Kevin. Really appreciate your insight. You betcha. Anytime, guys. Thanks, Kevin. Kevin Van Valkenburg, ESPN senior writer. Follow him at K. Van Valkenburg. Coming up later this month, 50th anniversary of the passage of Title IX landmark law. Is it, a, is, it, is it operating as it should, or do we have work to do? We'll talk about it next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. So today I spent some time on the south side of Chicago for a beautified Ooh. and refurbished field for the Lost Boys, Inc. Lost Girls softball initiative as part of ESPN's 50th anniversary of Title IX stuff. All sorts of stuff happening across our Disney parks, ABC, ESPN, ESPN+, Plus, podcast, radio, TV, etc., including uh, the 37 Words documentary that's going to be coming out the next couple weeks in four parts. Uh, very cool event to be a part of and particularly to talk to young girls and young people about Title IX and all the changes it has set up for people like me, to become an athlete and then become a sports analyst uh, and then young people now who are going to get those same opportunities because of something that was done 50 years ago. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Tons of content about this, Fitz. Um, and as we're talking about it, I think I started 
in the lead up to this, thinking of it as a celebration, which it is, absolutely, looking back at all the doors that it opened for people and all the changes it allowed in the atmosphere and the industry of sports uh, for women. But the more I dig into it, the more I realize that it's pretty pathetic that 50 years after the law passed, we're so failing in terms of actual compliance with it. It's such a reactive law that you have to complain about something not being legal in order for anyone to care and do something about it instead of the checks and transparency around compliance, uh, making for true equality across education. And my podcast this week is with Duke AD Nina King, professor and historian Victoria Jackson, and Honest Game co-founder Joyce Anderson. And we talk about a variety of Title IX related things, historically and current. And I had a conversation with Nina King about the fact that 87% of universities currently do not offer sports opportunities for women proportionate to their enrollment. 50 years after Title IX, for all the complaints people have about Title IX, it's still 87% of schools don't even have that. Um, so I just wanted to play a little bit of my conversation with Nina. Here's this week's Nod to the Pop. One of the biggest problems is that the additional quote-unquote opportunities for female athlete are often created without adding a single new team. So instead, a school will double and triple count existing athletes. Like if there's one cross-country runner, they'll count her as an indoor and outdoor track member, even if she doesn't compete in those. They'll count male practice players for sports like women's basketball, and they'll count them as female participants. And both of those are technically permitted by the Department of of education. You yeah. can count male practice players as women when it comes to meeting <laughs> Title IX standards. So in that investigation I mentioned from USA Today, between the 107 FBS schools, more than 3,600 of those quote-unquote opportunities were created without a single new team being added, which is wild. I mean, that's classic letter of the law, not spirit of the law behavior. Exactly. How do you react to that as athletic director? Because you are one of the very few at the top there that can engage with other athletic directors about the practices at their universities. And that that grosses me out. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It does. I mean, the, the male practice players are the worst or, or adding, um, you know, a, a bunch of walk-ons to a female sport so that your numbers count at the beginning of the year. And then who the heck knows where, where they went by the end of the year or by the time it's a, a mm -hmm. season um, for, for that sport to compete. So, you know, I, I am not pulling weeds in anyone else's garden. And I, I will say that in terms of Duke, um, I am focused here and, and um, making sure that we are continuing to create the opportunities here. For more, please subscribe and listen to That's What She Said with Sarah Spang on your smart speaker or wherever you listen to podcasts. Did you know any of that, Fitz, that you could do that and count it towards female participation? Yeah. So this has actually been a big part of the conversation <laughs> I've had for the last couple of years, and, and Dan Murphy's really helped educate me on some of this as I've tried to help some of the schools in the Big 12 in their arguments towards saving swimming and diving yeah. and other non-revenue generating sports. And one of the biggest contentions, particularly I can speak to the Michigan State uh, issues that they've had uh, trying to save their program that's been eliminated, but part of what they found in investigation is exactly what you're talking about. The, the school finds so many ways to say they're compliant when you actually look at the numbers and say, and then ask, are these women getting scholarships or are these men involved in women's sports that you're somehow cooking the books? And there's been no answer. I've gone to Michigan State repeatedly and asked for answers for them. I know Dan's done great reporting on it. And they're not the only school in the Big 12. I was dealt with this. You can go across the board. As schools started to find out that there was a fight to save programs, as former athletes started to find out that they were trying to save programs, I think this is one of the most eye-opening things. And it speaks 
to what you mentioned with what this this acknowledgement of Title IX is. At some point, whether you're talking about Title IX this month or you're talking about things like Pride, all, when, when you have a month that's, that's really geared towards something, part of it is the celebration. Part of it is also, to me, a deep analysis yes. of what are we doing and mm-hmm. how can we do it better. And this in. is a very specific thing that has to be fixed. Like, if, if there's going to be a law in place with a loophole like this, then how, how difficult, why is it difficult to go in and simply fix the loophole that everybody can see from this right. mismanagement of what was intended? I completely agree. And the Women's Sports Foundation released research, the Tucker Center for Girls and Women in Sport, and USA Today has about 15 articles based around some really deep dives into research that they did. And I think some of those specific examples are the things that will get people to recognize that a change is required. At least one of every four women's basketball player in the schools they studied reported to the government were actually male practice players. One in four. Mm. Analyzed schools created 2,252 women's roster spots by double and triple counting athletes. That's the thing we mentioned, where some cross-country runner who doesn't actually do track is counted as a track athlete twice for indoor and outdoor. You mentioned a couple schools. FSU, more than half of the 66 women on the indoor track and field team never competed indoors. More than half. Wisconsin claimed 165 women rowers athletes. More than a third of them never raced for Wisconsin. At Michigan, 29 athletes on the 43-player women's basketball roster were men. Like, you have to point these out because that compliance and the transparency that's lacking in understanding whether schools actually comply is so... It's it, Once you look into the numbers, it's so clear that there's a problem that I literally want to start a task force and argue for enforcement in completely different ways because it's currently clearly not working. I also want to argue for better representation. You need to have women in positions of power to understand what's being utilized here and what isn't being utilized so that true change can happen. This speaks to the lack of representation at the highest possible level at colleges to allow this to happen. Yeah, and I will say that Nina admitted Duke's not perfect either, so... There's a lot that needs to be done. Speaking of, lots to talk about with Game 1 of the Stanley Cup Finals. It's coming up next. We'll talk about it here on Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. We are only moments away from the puck drop that will start the final in the quest for the hoisting of Lord Stanley's Cup as the Avalanche and Lightning get set to start the Stanley Cup Finals, something that you can watch on ABC, you can watch also on ESPN+. Plus. This is Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, and we're going to get you caught up on everything you need to know. We're also on the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. And obviously, when we know the Stanley Cup Final is going, we pick up the bat phone and we call one of our favorites, and we call one of the experts that always calls us back. Our buddy Greg Wyshynski, ESPN senior NHL writer, joining us. You can follow him on Twitter, at Wyshynski. Greg, always appreciate the time especially on a night like tonight now I always think about unprecedented when it comes to the Stanley Cup final like I think of teams that come from out of nowhere it feels like every year there's a story about some team that was a low seed that made their way to the final but neither of these teams came from out of nowhere these were two of the best teams that we could have expected to be in this position so how different does this final feel to you as someone that's been around the sport for so long yeah that's why my, my playoff predictions all stunk because I was going for the unpredictability, you know. We weren't going to bring behold, it up, but, but since you did, uh, they were terrible. Yeah, they were terrible. Yeah, and lo and behold, the chalk wins out for the first time in forever. But you know, it's it's great to see. I mean, this is this is the matchup we all wanted to see. Um, not only because these two teams are so evenly matched on the ice, not only because you have this incredible matchup between um, uh, an elite defensive team and the Tampa Bay Lightning against the best offensive team we've had in the playoffs 
since 1988, I believe, uh, is, is how good the Avalanche are in scoring goals per game. Um, you have that great matchup, and then you have the narrative thing going on, which is you have a, an Avalanche team that's spent the last four years trying to break through to win a cup uh, going up against a Tampa Bay Lightning team that is, of course, trying to become the first three-peat in the NHL since 1983. So, I mean, it is, from, from on the ice to off the ice, just the most compelling matchup you could possibly book for the final. I listened to your ESPN Daily with Pablo today. It was really fantastic. So much information there. Encourage everybody to get a chance, if they can, to listen to that before the series or once it gets underway. But one of the things worth noting about the journeys of these two teams is you might look at the Avs' ability to quickly dispatch other teams and think, well, they're the clear favorite. When, in fact, uh, the Lightning probably had to go through a bit tougher competition, some longer series, for good reason, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're right. I mean, the Avalanche have basically been a steamroller. I mean, they, they swept two of their series. There was only really one moment in their playoff run where they faced any kind of adversity, which was losing game five at home to the St. Louis Blues, only to then close out the series in game six. Um, the, the lighting had been completely different. I mean, they, they had to go seven games to beat the Toronto Maple Leafs in the first round. Uh, in the second round, it was a bit easier. They took out their state rival Florida Panthers in a sweep. Panthers not really ready for prime time, unfortunately for me, who picked them to win the cup. And then in the final, in, in, in the Easter Conference final, in the Easter Conference final, they they had uh, a really interesting series against the New York Rangers. The Rangers have a goalie by the name of Igor Shcherbin, one of the best in the world, um, and really gave them a, a tough series until the Lightning finally took over. So, Tampa with the tougher path to the final. Colorado, uh, we're trying to figure out whether they got some breaks along the way with some right. injuries to goalies and things, or if they're just kind of, in the, in, in, the, in the words of Billy Zane in Titanic, Sarah, making their own luck. <laughs> I mean, that being said. I have a child! <laughs> but it's only taken them 14 games to get to the, the Stanley Cup final. Like, at some point, what does that mean for the, the energy they'll have in their legs? Yeah, they're going to have a ton more of it. And, you know, the Lightning had a nine-day layoff between the uh, Panthers series and the Rangers series. Game one against the Rangers, they played their worst game. They didn't have their legs. So we might see, again, that layoff impact Colorado tonight in game one. But as the series went on, that extra rest that they got really, I think, made a difference against the Rangers um, and, and, uh, and, and could be the same thing that plays out here. But, again, like you mentioned Colorado and, and the way they've gone through these series. I talked to Eric Johnson um, and Kale McCarr, both the defensemen for the Avalanche yesterday at Media Day, and they both kind of said the same thing, which is one of the lessons they've had to learn through the years, through these playoff disappointments. This is the first time this group has gotten past the second round. One of the things they had to learn was once you have a team down, once you have them beaten – don't take your foot off the gas. Like, complete the job. And when you look at that Edmonton Oilers series where they took a 3-0 lead, to then close it out in a sweep, I think, is indicative of them finally kind of learning that lesson. And, and, and we'll see if they can apply it to the, to the Stanley Cup final. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, talking to Greg Wyshynski. You can follow him at Wyshynski, two Y's and an I, on Twitter. So you mentioned the goaltending. A lot of people believe that despite the high scoring of the abs and the incredible talent up and down the roster, this could come down to the old hockey cliche of whichever goalie stands on his head. And that would more likely be the lightning tender. Is that enough to decide that you might go lightning in this series instead of abs? (laughs) It's enough where they could win the series. I mean, if you're looking for the tail of the tape between these two teams, the biggest disparity in any category is the Lightning goaltender, Andre Vasilevsky, 
versus the uh, Avalanche goaltenders, Darcy Kemper and Pavel Franchot. It's not even close. Vasilevsky is, um, you know, there's a lot of people. I have a column actually coming out tomorrow on ESPN.com talking about whether we should chisel Vasilevsky's face on the Mount Rushmore for playoff goalies. And a wow. lot of people believe that, that you should. Marty Brodeur told me that you should. I mean, that's how good he's been in the playoffs for the, the Lightning in the last uh, three or four years. So um, this is a huge advantage for the Lightning. And, and, yes, he can win the series on his own. And, yes, it is going to be the toughest part of the, of the series for the, the Avalanche to get through. Um, their goaltending, I don't think, can win in the series. I think when you look at their goalies, all you're looking for is them to make a save occasionally and be competent. Uh, I don't think you look to either of those guys to steal a game against the Lightning. So when you talk about Stanley Cups, I always think hot goaltenders win Cups, to your point. But then you see production that we haven't seen in the Stanley Cup playoffs, to your point earlier, in a generation offensively from the Avs. So what wins in this Stanley Cup, offense or defense? Well, I got the Avs in six. Again, as you guys know, that doesn't mean anything. Congratulations <laughs> to the Lightning on your cup. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I, I think one thing we haven't talked about here is the X factor. And the X factor for me is Kael McCarr, uh, this defenseman on the Colorado Avalanche, probably you know, potentially going to win the Norris Trophy for the league's best defenseman, uh, setting records for scoring as a defenseman in these playoffs. Basically what it is is that when you have a player – but that, that's that good offensively playing on defense. It's like having a fourth forward on the ice. And, and, and frequently, he's the best of those players on the ice offensively. So the Lightning have the game plan for you know Nathan McKinnon and Gabe Landeskog and Nico Ranton and all these great offensive players that play at forward on the avalanche. And then they have to kind of figure out how to slow down this X factor in, in Kale McCarr. And I think, you know, McCarr's postseason, the way he's played, I think he could be what, what turns the series to the avalanche in just his own ability offensively. So I'm taking him in six. If it gets to seven, they ain't going to win because the Lightning, all they do is win elimination games. But I think the Avalanche could, could, could win this thing in six. Greg, who are the names outside of some of the guys who have already been great this postseason that have already done well for themselves in terms of getting more casual fans to know, okay, this guy's legit? Who are a couple players on each side that might, during the series, be able to really break through? Well, one name that you should pay attention to is actually Kel McCarr's defensive partner. His name is Devon Taves. And uh, he's typically known as, like, the defensive defenseman to McCarr. Uh, you know, his part, that's how, usually how these partnerships work, where one guy plays defense while the other guy skates around and scores a bunch of points. But uh, Taves actually is almost a point-per-game player in these playoffs. Really great all-around player, a name to definitely watch. On the Lightning side, it's a name you might remember if you paid attention to their previous two Stanley Cup wins. But Braden Point is a great two-way player for them. He's actually missed the last two rounds of the playoffs. He was injured in Game 7 of the Leafs series. He will be back for Game 1 tonight. Um, most, there's a chance he might actually play up on like their second or third line. It'll take a little bit for him to get his legs back under him. He's, he's been out for, for, uh, since like May 15th, I think it is. So it's going to take a little bit of time. But once he gets going, no one has scored more goals in the playoffs over the last three seasons than Braden Point has. So definitely somebody to watch for the Lightning. You guys can follow him on Twitter, at Wyshynski. Get to check out all of his work throughout the course of the entire Stanley Cup final. As always, Greg, we appreciate your expertise. Enjoy an amazing game. Thanks, Wish. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. Thanks for having me. The Western Conference champion Colorado Avalanche hosts the Eastern Conference champs Tampa Bay Lightning game one of the Stanley Cup final right now. 
8 p.m. Eastern, ABC, and ESPN+. Plus. So feel free to keep it muted while you hang out with us. But you got to get out there and watch it. It's going to be an amazing series. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. What do your home and auto have in common? They're yours, and Progressive protects them both. Bundle today at Progressive.com. Is the Live Golf League actually casting a black cloud on the U.S. Open? We'll figure it out next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app at Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. And right now there's a constant conversation happening in the golf world. I'll be honest. I feel like other than the word tiger, I've talked more about golf in the last couple of weeks than I have in the last several years working at ESPN combined. And that comes down to what's happening with the Live Golf uh, group uh, challenge that is coming out where several golfers have decided to leave the PGA Tour to become part of Live Golf. We've talked about this a lot, Sarah, and one of the complications of this conversation has been a fine line conversation between what we talk about with other sports leagues and what we're talking about here because I often have people blow me up on Twitter uh, with their keyboards talking about how, well, we don't have these same conversations when it comes to the NBA in China. And we talked to Kevin Van Valkenburg earlier, and he said, hey, I welcome those conversations. But it's an interesting line to be in as we try and figure out how to, to judge these golfers for taking the money that they're taking. And one that, frankly... Even our own peers don't always agree on. Bart Scott was on Barton Hunt earlier today and said this about the live golfers. We holding players accountable because they're worrying about themselves when everybody in this country worries about themselves. And then when it doesn't benefit them, then they have something. Now they want to sit on their moral compass. Like Brittany Griner is locked up because she was playing where? Russia. Yeah. Human rights she, violations she, all but, over but, the but, place, right? So why so why don't why don't the NBA why don't the NBA take some of that? China money and give it to the WNBA so they want the players wouldn't have to go over there. Oh, because they're taking money from another dictating country. So get off your moral compass. Because the NBA don't have to take China money. It's still to be one of the biggest sports in America, but they need that globalization in, in Africa. They need that globalization in China. So they gladly take that money and they turn a blind eye. Nobody says nothing to that. Our WNBA players shouldn't have to go play in Europe. They should be respected and get paid what they're supposed to get paid because they put a good product out there on this side of the, of the country, this side of the Atlantic, Pacific, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, listen, I, I get the underlying intent of what he's saying there. And I don't disagree that there are conversations to be had about the human rights atrocities in China and the ways that the NBA working with the Chinese government and China on basketball um, can help sport wash those atrocities. I agree that there's a massive conflict in a WNBA player feeling like she needs to go play for Russia to make five times as much and make a, a, a living as she can here in our own country. But they are significantly different than being in charge of a new league in that country run by that government where the sole intent is to create a distraction and to allow for involvement in government relations, you know, business, business deals, etc. China isn't making a new NBA that NBA players are leaving to play in. They're participating in an existing league that the NBA still has complete control over. Brittany doesn't endorse Putin by going to play for a Russian team because those Russian teams are not made in order to sport wash. They're made because some, you know, Russian czar oligarch wants to feel like he owns a bunch of, of athletes. 
I'm not saying any of those things are okay. I just don't think whataboutism is the answer to the current crisis that's going on in terms of morality here. I think the whataboutism portion of it, even, and I know that for some people it becomes such a triggering phrase that that everybody wants to put up walls. So let me say this. Uh, Anytime we are arguing like children, it really bothers me. So if the answer is, yeah, but this is happening over there, and yeah, but this is happening over there, they're all fair conversations to have. And uh, to be very blunt, nobody has ever come to me, and obviously I'm not somebody that, that talks about a lot of this deep stuff sometimes, but nobody's ever come to me from ESPN and said, you can't talk about the relationship between NBA and China. So let me just put that to bed right now. Number two on all of this, one does not sort of have, at some point we have to just face the challenges we're facing right now. So if we want to have a great conversation about the NBA, China, and everything that that presents, I have no problem getting a bunch of guests having those deep conversations and talking about what should be done and what could be done. In this instance, it's the sport washing element of it that, frankly, I was pretty ignorant to two weeks ago that I've learned a lot about based on working with you and based on this show and then going out and reading as much as possible. That's the other step in all of this. Like. It's really easy for all of us to get fired up about what we think without taking the time to read as much as we possibly can. And that that's all I can do. And the more I read about it, the more uncomfortable I become with what the entirety of this process is, from the way it's funded to how the people are taking money to what they're doing in, in, in the way they're promoting all of this and their real intent. That's the, the hard part about this is that I think that there's room to have all of these conversations that are difficult about being involved in places that have such terrible human rights violations. I can't have them all at once. So the only one I can have right now that makes sense is this one because it is a pressing issue that we're all focused on. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio. Yeah, I think um, one of the important things is that there are elements to this conversation that are not one side or the other that fit somewhere in the middle. The conversation about quote-unquote free agency coming to golf and the way the PGA might be exposed for being restrictive is a good conversation to have. And if there are players that feel like committing to PGA means you are really betting on the only solid income coming from success as opposed to participation, it's a very different model than other sports, right? Of course, you have to make a roster of a major team, but then you're getting paid a contract. Whether you're injured, whether you play, whether you play well or not, maybe there's bonuses built in. That structure might be better for golf than where it currently sits. And that frustration that's boiled over and caused enough golfers to seek the leverage and the immediate payday of live is a conversation worth having. I think it's empty to simply say these people are evil and not get into the details of it. Because not only does that ignore the ways that the PGA maybe didn't listen enough to players and and eventually resulted in this opportunity for live golf, but it also... Uh, makes it easy for people to say, oh, you know, what about this? What about this? Instead of digging deep into asking why this feels different. And that includes some of the stuff we talked about before, where you're literally, are you comfortable going to the heads of the Saudi government to ask about a call that you didn't agree with or a tournament <laughs> rule that didn't go right or a, pay, a, a payment that didn't arrive on time or anything, right? Like, or the families that are literally sending you letters and asking how you feel about covering up for a government that was directly involved. They are still suing for the death of their child. That's a lot more complicated than some of the other stuff that people are trying to turn an eye to. It doesn't make it okay, but we got to have more nuanced conversations on either side. One of the things that I continue to try to wrap my head around, though, is what impact this will have long term on, on the PGA tour 
uh, I understand Kevin Van Valkenburg earlier said it, it, it's huge because think of if the 50 top golfers go somewhere else. Right. I just wonder if we're actually going to see that. So far, we haven't seen that. And I'm not a golf aficionado. I, I don't hunt it out. So to know that it's difficult to find some of these live tournaments, if you can find them at all, to know that you know it doesn't involve a name like Tiger, I right now I struggle to see if it will have the impact some thinks it will think it will have in the way they do business because I'm not sure long term it will have the ratings impact until they get bigger names involved and I don't know that they're going to get that if these questions continue to be so loudly asked. I agree. I think unfortunately based on every single example from history, people's furor over this stuff tends to die down and they kind of shrug their shoulders if it lasts long enough and if enough players leave. So I think this gamble might work out for these guys in terms of money and in terms of a large enough group of golf fans who just say, doesn't matter to me. I will continue to have these conversations. We will as we try to figure all of it out, and we'll have them all together. In the meantime, what's gonna, what will be the deciding factor tomorrow night between the Warriors and Celtics? We'll have to ask a doctor next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Is it all over for the Celtics? Or do they have a comeback in them after the Warriors have won two straight and forced an elimination game for Boston? We'll get into it next. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. ESPN senior writer Andre Snellings. You can follow him at Professor Dr. Z on Twitter. Joins us now. Before we get to the hoops, you had like a serious scare on your flight today that had you rethinking a whole bunch of things. Tell us what happened. Yeah, the the man sitting next to me on the plane um, had a, a, a medical emergency. Um, it, you know, he, when he first tapped me and said he wasn't feeling good, I was thinking maybe he was airsick, but it was actually a significant emergency um, where, you know, I had to run and get help and, oh, and wow. go get the oxygen and or go tell somebody to get the oxygen. And they did what you do on TV with the, is there a doctor in the house? They said, but now it's, are there any medical professionals right. on the plane? And five or six people came and helped them. And, you know, he, um, they were able to get him back alert and responsive. And so, you know, I'm, I'm praying that everything is good. The paramedics came and got him off the plane when we, when we landed and he kind of like, you know, found me and gave me the, the fist, you know, like a thank you kind of thing. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm praying wow. everything's fine with that man, but yes, yeah, the kind of thing that, you know, we, we were talking beforehand. He was talking about retiring and all of these, you know, wonderful things that he was wanting to do. And it makes you like, I, I, I got to call my wife and kids and tell somebody I love them, you know, <laughs> like, right. so, you know, you sure. get some hugs. Everybody, everybody listening, go hug somebody you love, you know, so it's worth it. Well, good on you for keeping your composure together in such a uh, uh, such a situation like that's Just uh, that's easier said than done, man. We appreciate you joining us on a day that's obviously uh, heavy for that, but we got to get into the NBA and uh, all eyes are going to be on what happens between the Warriors and the Celtics. So what's the one adjustment you think the Boston Celtics can make to win this game? So the interesting thing is I don't necessarily see it as a matter of adjustment. They played – their game plan was strong enough for them to win each of the last two games. Um, where they failed was execution down the stretch. So if there is an adjustment, I think it has to be with the way that Jason Tatum and, to a lesser extent, Jalen Brown handled the fourth quarter because the Celtics are not a traditional offense in the sense that they don't really have a strong point guard that's setting everyone else up. They rely on Tatum and Brown to create offense for the rest of the team. So, yes, we want them making their own shots and knocking down their own shots. But more than that, 
the Celtics need them to set up Marcus Smart, to set up White, to set up Al Horford, to knock down Grant Williams, to knock down, you know, big shots late in games. And they, they haven't been able to do that the last two games. They, they seem like they've gotten bogged down on their own shots and gotten kind of strangely passive. So I think the adjustment is their main players have to be more aggressive late in the game to ensure, and early in the game, be more aggressive for creating offense for their teammates early in the game so that by the time it gets late, those guys are already feeling confident and knocking down shots and not feeling like they have to create for themselves, which isn't their strength. It sounds so simple to say, keep it simple, cut down on turnovers. Why haven't they been able to adjust their play to do so when it's so clear that 16 and up, they lose, 16 and down, they win? That when Tatum and Brown together have a much higher assist number than turnovers combined, that they win? Why? What is it that the Warriors are doing or what decisions are the Celtics making that are contributing to all those turnovers? I think it ties directly to what I was just talking about with the Celtics not really having a point guard. And, and not even just having, not having a point guard, but Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are not even natural guards. Like, they're, they're more small forwards that have developed a handle. And so part of the reason, I, I picked the Celtics, you know, full disclosure, to win this series. I picked them to win in seven games. And the reason I thought they could win is I thought they had the better matchups. I, I thought that the, the Warriors were not built to exploit that particular weakness of the Celtics the way that the Heat and the Bucks had with their excellent perimeter defenders. And what we've been seeing in this series is we've seen Andrew Wiggins step up in a monster way on defense. Um, we, we've seen Gary Payton II be able to come back from his injury. And, you know, in game five, he was all in Jalen Brown's airspace every time Jalen tried to do something. And so now the Warriors are pr- defending the perimeter at a high level, and it's taking advantage. Like, I don't even know if that's decision-making. I think it's an Achilles heel of the Celtics' offense. They need better playmaking. And lacking it, like, there's nothing they can do between now and tomorrow to improve their playmaking. So they have to, you know, do their best, make the best decisions they can. But turnovers are going to be their weakness. There's only potentially two more games in the season for them, maybe one. But that, that is going to be their weakness moving forward. We're talking to ESPN senior writer Andre Snellings on Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. So uh, we've made it this far without talking about Steph, which is, I think, a a new record for today on ESPN. So (laughs) Steph didn't necessarily have his best night in the last game. So what do you expect from Steph in the next game? Brilliance. Excellence. Um, Mm -hmm. So here's the thing. I'm a big analytics guy. I'm a numbers guy. I'm a nerd. You know, it's what it is. And – when evaluating the way that players contribute to the game, I think we as a group of people that loves to watch basketball way overrate the guy who's making the shot. I mean, that's important. You want the guy to make the shot. But where you really have a big offensive impact is if you're able to make the defense do what it doesn't want to do. So even on a night where Steph goes 0 for 9 from the field, him being out on the court means that the Celtics are – gearing their whole everything to him. And that means everybody else is wide open. Everybody else is able to hit shots. And um, I saw a staff from ESPN Analytics, that, I mean, I'm sorry, ESPN uh, Stats and Information that was breaking that down. I think in the last game, the, uh, the Warriors shot 49% from the field when Steph was on the court and 35% or, or 22% when he was off or something like that. And, and no, it was, I'm sorry, last game it was 65% on, 22% off. 
For the series, it's 49% on, 35% off. And so whether Steph is making it or not, him being out there means everybody else is hitting, which is a huge thing. 100%. But he's played forever, and he never – this is his first playoff game not making a three-pointer. I think we can conservatively expect him to to knock down five or more this next game as a bounce back. I completely agree. We actually talked about it last night. The 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 the, the extreme excitement about Wiggins is totally okay, but to argue that he's been the MVP over Steph is because you don't expect it as much and you don't maybe recognize how much Steph changes every moment of every game, even when he is missing. Not to mention that despite that 0 for 9 from 3, he had a good shooting game. He had one turnover, a bunch of assists, right? He he was off a little bit, but he still played well compared to everyone else. And actually, Kirk Goldsberry has a story up about how he's in the midst of one of the greatest jump shooting finals performances of all time. Uh, so he's still exactly. doing okay. Um Really quickly, earlier in the show, and we're talking to Andre Snelling. You can follow him at Professor Dr. Z. Earlier in the show, we were talking about how the Game 6 stacks up mentally. The Celtics haven't been there before. Maybe they don't even recognize yet. Definitely Horford does. But maybe some of the others don't recognize yet how hard it is to get to a Finals. They think they'll have another shot. So maybe they're playing with a little less weight than a than a you know Curry-led Golden State team that's got a lot of experience here, but maybe is on the later end of their window. Who's in a better position now, the one who's been there before or the one who maybe doesn't realize uh, that this could be the only chance they get? Right. So, so coming into the series, experience, like there's, there's, no, there's no substitute for that. So I think the Warriors were in a better place just because their coach, their core players, even guys like Iguodala on the bench had been there so many times and could impart so much information to their teammates that hadn't been there before. But I do think that the Celtics, they don't strike me as a team that's taken this lightly, you know, all through the playoffs, what they did with against the Bucks, against the Heat. Like, I feel like they are trying to grasp the moment. And I think that's important, the, the, the fact that they were able to win game one and they've already bounced back some in this series. I think that's good. But, um, but if, if, who has the advantage has got to be the Warriors because they know what it takes to win a championship. Yeah. I, I agree with you, although uh, we'll see how that ends up looking after we watch game six. Maybe there'll be uh, a wild flurry of activity from a Boston team that's got nothing to lose. Hey, Andre, thanks so much for the time. Go hug some people. Go send some texts. Everybody listening, do the same. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you, brother. The road to the rematch is on as bantamweight champ Juliana Pena and former champ Amanda Nunes go head-to-head as coaches on the historic 30th season of The Ultimate Fighter. Stream the series now exclusively on ESPN+. Sign up now at ESPNplus.com. Coming up, what's the biggest, almost big moment you've ever had? I thought of one, Fitz. I was inspired by someone on Twitter to remember an almost incredible, amazing, would have been so cool, would have told the story for life, might have changed my entire career and life moment. I'll tell you what it is next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Ooh, we got a busy first period in the Stanley Cup final. Game one going on right now. You can watch it on ABC, ESPN Plus, or ESPN app. Avalanche up two goals to one right now. The Lightning just got on the board to cut that lead in half, but we've still got seven and a half minutes or so to play in the first. Could it be a high-scoring series, I predict, Fitz, and shocking for the Abs to have already put two on Vasilevsky, I mean, that's uh, that's going to be one of the big things we're watching all series long. It's Spain and Fitz, by the way. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius, XM Channel 80. By the way, the abs also had one bounce off the crossbar. So, like, the, the just the the ability, it almost looked like it was going to be 3 nothing. Now we sit at 2-1. Right. It's just amazing, and that's what makes the Stanley Cup final so incredible to me. Can it's I like, tell you? 
Go ahead. You know, just the fact that like that one little inch went from oh this is going to be a blowout to now well it's two one and it's anybody's game like it's just it changes so rapidly. I need to tell you about a stat that I heard earlier today that I forgot to mention when we were talking to Greg Wyshynski. I am almost certain I have it right. If I have it wrong, it's off by like one shot or something. But Vasilevsky, Andre Vasilevsky, the goalie for the Lightning, in elimination games in the postseason, he has stopped 119 of 121 shots. Oh, my God. That's just that's that was not on ESPN fair. Daily today. A hundred and nineteen of a hundred and twenty-one shots of in in a combined however many elimination games in which he's played. Unbelievable. We'll keep an eye on that. Uh, always fun Stanley Cup final, even if your team isn't in it. Um, and things get wild and crazy, especially when it goes to endless endless overtimes. Uh, we were asking you earlier as we were talking about Miles Mikolas of the Cardinals losing a no-hitter with two outs in the ninth last night against Pittsburgh. What is your moment that is almost great? You're on the precipice of something legendary, something that you will be talking about for the rest of your life, something that other people will talk about maybe if it's in sports or some sort of accomplishment involving awards, and you just came up short we got a couple good ones fits uh scott ma four five zero seven three two three one uh almost had a hole in one ball went right over the edge of the cup i guarantee you a lot of people have that story uh i i, I don't but you know i don't even have a hole in one in mini golf i don't think but yeah that wow. is one of those wow. like everybody everybody has that hole in one but story doesn't make it hurt any less because everybody <laughs> wants to be able to say they have a hole in one and to miss it by that much uh steubenville t this is an interesting one Senior year in high school, met two girls at a friend's house. Everyone left except me and the girls. One thing led to another until my friends came back early and effectively ended my night. I went from a grand slam to being no hit in one swing. Okay. Now, hmm. if all hmm. of that is true, I'll give it to you. That's, uh, I would imagine, a pretty legendary evening, something you'll talk about for a while. I'm just curious when he says one thing led to another. Were they in the act of frolicking, canoodling, etc.? Or in his mind was just a situation that involved him being in a room with two women enough to think this is going to happen? Uh, yeah, a, a couple of things here, too. Like, if I separated the two women into another room and asked their perspective, would they be like, <laughs> I, I don't know, he brought coffee to us. I, we were just hanging out. We were sitting right, around. Right, right, right. Secondly, I can tell you, I don't care how good a friend we are or bad a friend we are. If I'm in that situation and you walk in and it's going to stop that situation, I'm going to politely ask you to leave right there. Like there's, <laughs> there's no way. Like you controlled your own destiny right there. Like uh, I, any any guy I've ever met could look at the other guy in this situation and just give him a look, and yeah. it's like the oh my like, god, I need to dude, leave right now. Come on, just just right. call me later and tell me all the details. Like right. that's it. Like right. that's it. A friend of mine uh, engaged in a threesome his freshman year in college, and not only was it a memorable time, I guess, for all of them, but it was parents' weekend, hmm. and he was so hammered, as were his two companions, that his mom walked into the room while they were all still naked in bed, sleeping off the previous night's romp, hmm. and had to tell him to go ahead and put on some clothes, tell the ladies to go home and go to breakfast. Well, at least, uh, you know, in that situation. Witnesses, it's your mom. It's your mom. 
But you do have an eyewitness that you it happened. You better have married one of them because otherwise your mom's going to tell that story to whoever you bring right. home for the rest of your life. Well, I don't know, though, because I'm not sure I want to marry someone where that's where things started. I don't know. Yeah, it just feels like uh, you're only, are you only going downhill from there, maybe? Yeah, um, yeah. All right. Another one is at Jamie Reedy. I shot a scene in Love and Other Drugs because the director wanted to do me a favor as the author of the book, as I'm the author of the book on which the movie is based. In it, I high five Jake Gyllenhaal cutting room floor that is a good one because there are moments like that where you are you know potentially going to be a part of something very cool the very first audition i did in la was for an espies commercial i i got the part i went in i filmed everything i told everyone to watch didn't make any of the different versions like that would have been cool it would have been a really cool thing to say i just got to la and i'm already in something instead i nobody saw it it was very sad so i think that's a pretty good one and it inspired my big revelation but i want to hear yours before i give mine so you have a near amazing moment that you have to share i didn't think about the acting side of it it wasn't really amazing for me because i turned it down i was walking through new york about to play a show uh, i had a show with the artist i was playing with at the time and I was walking on one of those streets that was shut down for filming, and I didn't pay any attention to it. I had to get hair product, you know, for the show. So I was walking of back course. through, yeah. and uh, they asked me, uh, the, somebody came up and was like, hey, you have the perfect look for this. Can you do a scene in, and it was in Gossip Girl, and I never watched Gossip Girl, so I was like, no, nah, I'm good. It's... And I left, and uh, and everybody, when I got to the, like, the, the stagehands, because you're in New York, and all these stagehands are actors trying to make it, were all very mad at me. But I didn't really think of that as a make it moment, because I didn't re- watch the show. For me... I was going to play Saturday Night Live, which is a huge moment for me in my life, would have been uh, with Imagine Dragons. And uh, they were doing a little string section, and they asked me if I wanted to sit in with the string section, thought it was going to happen, and and I was already in New York with the band Perry at the time. And uh, it turned out that the the band Perry, we had an album release event we had to do that would have been during the time of the rehearsal, and you can't play the show if you miss the rehearsal. So because of this thing, this private event for like 20 snobs, I had to miss Saturday Night Live. That one hurts. Still kills me. That one really hurts. You got to get in with a band good enough that they're going to be doing SNL. They don't even really need a fiddle player, but they'll let you stand in the back and do a little dance and pretend I've got that deal going with Walker Hayes. The Applebee song guy, like Walker Hayes told me, Walker was like, look, if I get on Saturday Night Live, he's like, it doesn't even matter if there's a fiddle in the song. You can just stand up on stage Amazing. So that's all I I feel bad now for making fun of that song so much. Sounds like a nice guy. (laughs) Really, really, really. It'd be my all-time favorite song if it gets me on SNL. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. I will change my (laughs) tune about him if he gets you on SNL, but I will never listen to that song by choice. Okay, here's mine. And I might have told this story before, but for those who haven't heard it, this is a true would talk about this forever moment. I auditioned to be on The Office, and it was the scene where Dwight and... uh, what's his name, Ryan, and a couple of them go to New York City and they go to the club and they come across a group of female basketball players in line. It's a basketball team. And they end up hanging with the girls to get them into the club. This girl ends up smooching Dwight in the episode. That's the part I tried out for. Oh, my God. And I did not get it. So I guess maybe, you know, if you called up the casting director, they would be like, no, not on the precipice, not even close. She was terrible. But still, I was in the room, I did the read, I was called in, they liked my look, they liked my whatever enough to bring me in for it, and had I gotten that, I mean, that's like SNL in terms of like iconic shows where every time your episode's on, someone's like, dude, 
I just saw you in the office. Like, the reruns, the conversations, the blogs, the podcasts, the com- Oh, just, it would have been and, so No, cool. you eliminate everything else from your bio. For all of the awards yes. that you've won, you eliminate every, everything and you say I star of the Trude. office. That's yes. all that, like, that's it. I kissed, that's, that's, I kissed it's a one Dwight Schrute. I was on the office. <laughs> Oh, oh, that that is that's heartbreaking. It. Honestly, yeah. that is like you were right there. Oh, I, I still think about it. All I, I have is a couple you. music videos for Trace Atkins and the Britney Spears of Italy, Laura oh. Pauchini. Uh, <laughs> if you do want to see my excellent acting work, walking down a street, uh, just check out "Ladies Love Country Boys," the Trace Atkins video. You'll be able to spot me. I'm the only one who's nearly as tall as Trace Atkins, who's like six six. I think that's the only reason I got cast. Uh, I was the only person ever been taller than me. Trace Atkins gonna be on with Freddie and Fitzsimmons next. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at seven Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.